Good morning. Morning. Oh, Matt, yeah, Matt has a request for more Taylor Swift. Yeah. <laughs> If we haven't met, my name's Tyler. I'm one of the pastors here on staff. Really glad to have you this morning. Pablo and Juanita, thank you for that. Thank you. They did a great job. Yeah, thank you. Uh, one other quick thing for you to know is uh, we have a table in the lobby for something called A Night Out. Uh, that's February 9th. It's an opportunity for us to go out into the community and love our neighbor. And so it's an opportunity to invite someone you don't know that well um, but also for you to invite them to maybe do it as well. You don't need to be in the church to do this. Like, I invited my whole gym, I invited my whole friend circle, and just said, hey, if you care about this and you want to get to know someone else, come. We are literally giving you money to go love people who need it. We have free childcare, all those things, but we do need to know how many kids are here so we can get enough background check workers. So Heather or Thomas are going to be at the table in the lobby afterwards. We'd love for you to sign up and register for that. Um, because it's an opportunity for us to, to do what we say we want to do, and that's to make everyone, at least have everyone know they have an opportunity to belong here, or just in a community elsewhere. So, know that's coming. Today's going to be good. I'm going to give you a lot. So, maybe get your notes ready, get your Bible ready. Uh, let's, let's jump in. On December 13th, 1989, in Reading, Pennsylvania, a musician was born by the name of Taylor Swift. Taylor Swift. Although she was popular before, it went to a whole new level in 2023 with the release of her Eras Tour. For those of you who aren't self-described Swifties, this is her most recent tour, which started in March of 23, concludes in December of this year. During the tour, she plays at 151 different venues spanning across five different continents. Met with unparalleled demand, tickets sold out within hours, and Ticketmaster's website actually crashed when over 14 million people went online for the pre-sale. It's estimated as the first ever tour to generate over $1 billion in revenue. To put it in perspective, her concert in Glendale, Arizona outperformed another event in Glendale, Arizona just a few months prior, which was the Super Bowl. But the money goes far deeper than just net profits. The Eras Tour is projected to generate close to $5 billion in consumer spending in the United States alone. Question Pro Research and Insight says that if Taylor Swift were an economy, she'd be bigger than 50 countries. All this to say, the demand to see Taylor Swift has been a cultural phenomenon which has rarely, rarely been matched. People literally lined up for days to share the same space as her. Today, crowds flock to see Taylor Swift. But 2,000 years ago, people flocked to see another person, a peasant from a no-name town called Yeshua or Nazareth. We call him Jesus. And while Jesus was regularly surrounded by masses, he spent most of his time focused on the 12 disciples. These fateful men were given the inside track to his day, day in and day out. For three years, they journeyed and they traveled with him, they ate with him, they laughed with him, they shared life with him. They had a front row ticket to the best show on earth. And so it probably came as a huge surprise to them when on the last few nights of his life, Jesus tells them these words found in John 16. But very truly I tell you, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. 
In effect, he was saying, as good as I am, there is someone coming that is better. And it's good for me to go away. Or he can't come. I have to. I'm sending you my spirit, the Holy Spirit, who will be your advocate. The spirit of truth is coming in my place. Now, if I was one of Jesus' disciples, I wouldn't buy it. I'd be like, how in the world would this be better? Jesus has already proved that he had an authoritative teaching and he had done miracles and power and things that had never before been seen. He was the Messiah, the chosen one, the one coming to release captives from prison, to release them, the people of God, from their oppressors. So how could the Holy Spirit possibly be better than that? And if I suspect many of us in this room probably still struggle with that question, how is the Holy Spirit possibly better than Jesus. Because for many of us, we've been underwhelmed and maybe a touch disappointed with the Holy Spirit. And if given the chance, we would easily trade him in for a beer with the living and breathing Jesus. And yet, and still, Jesus says the Holy Spirit is a staggering improvement. So how come that hasn't been our experience? How is it that Jesus believes it is an improvement? How is the Holy Spirit better? In 2024, our continued vision is until everyone belongs. We've spent a ton of time over the last few years setting this place, renovating things, reestablishing the culture, and now the opportunity for us to go is now. And so we're starting this year looking at the sermon series of Love Your Neighbor. It's this idea of if we are to go, then we need to look at Jesus as our model. He gives us a blueprint for what this looks like. And so we say, let's start right there. So for eight weeks in this series, we're looking at that. Jesus, teach us to love our neighbor. Let us look at that. And so to just recap where we've been so far, we started with the concept of selection, that Jesus didn't neglect the masses, but he did focus on a few. Matt asked us who we've been mentored by, and better yet, who are we mentoring? Then Michelle offered us the concept of association, that Jesus inconveniently did life alongside others that he invited them into the intimate places of his life and associated with them in theirs. Last week, we looked at the concept of consecration, that obedience develops holiness, which leads us to this week and our principle for this week, which is impartation. We may not use that word very much, but the concept is that Jesus imparts his spirit on us. But before we jump in the deep end, let me offer a few disclaimers, because for some of us, you get all riled up at the mention of the Holy Spirit. Because for you, it's the measure of spiritual maturity. For you, you even grade your sermons on how many times the Holy Spirit is mentioned. You listen to me mention the Holy Spirit, and your thought is, it is about time. And I don't want to quench your passion for the Spirit, but I do want to put it in its rightful place. Because even though Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 12 to eagerly desire the greater gifts, he also cautions us and says that love is the most excellent way. Now, for others of us, you cringe at the mention of the Holy Spirit. Maybe you have a little PTSD, because for you, it was a concept manipulated by previous church history, which left you, which left you with spiritual abuse and maybe with hurt. And if that's you, then first of all, I just want to say I'm so, so sorry. Because that couldn't be further from the truth of what the Holy Spirit's designed and intended to do. Elsewhere in the Bible, the Holy Spirit is referred to as a counselor. And so if your experience of the Holy Spirit has not resembled therapy, the therapy that's difficult but never shaming, healing but never condemning, then my guess is the Spirit has been used as a Trojan horse against you. And that's not the way it should be. 
And then there's a final group of us who have no idea what I'm talking about. Never heard about the Holy Spirit, don't know what I'm saying. And let me warn you today, it's going to be a bit like drinking from a fire hose, but that's okay. You all are incredibly intelligent, and I don't say that tongue-in-cheek, I really mean it. You're really a smart, bright group of people. And so my hope is that in my limited time, I'll challenge your mind, I'll teach you who the Holy Spirit is, and there's going to be a lot today that you're not going to get. That's okay. That's partly why we record the sermons. You can go back and listen to it. Or we're living, breathing people too. You can pull a pastor aside, ask us a question afterwards. We'd love to talk about it. Not going to say that we have all the answers, but we'd love to have just a chat. I trust, though, that the Holy Spirit will highlight the implications for your life. And so with that, let's kind of jump into the deep end of this question that the Holy Spirit is somehow better than living, breathing Christ. So if you've grown up in, any, in the church for any length of time, you, you've probably heard about the Holy Spirit or maybe the Holy Ghost in some capacity, some way, shape, or form, even if it was not a lot. And this is typically what's called Trinitarian theology, because Trinitarian theology states that God exists in three equal but separate parts. Maybe you've heard this before, but that each person is completely God, each are completely distinct, but they are all made of the same substance. Now back in the days of the early church, followers of, of Jesus began to have tons of experience with the Holy Spirit. So much so that they had a hard time understanding, like, what is happening? Like, I have all this experience, and I don't have a box to put this in. This is really confusing, because God was consistently breaking the rules that they thought existed. So the church got together, and they wanted to rewrite the rules. They were like, let's let's try to figure this out. So they created these councils called the ecumenical councils. And in these councils, their goal was to kind of codify their beliefs or come up with these maybe doctrines of faith. And so this is where the Nicene Creed or the Apostles' Creed came from, if you've ever kind of heard of those. And in one of those, in the Nicene Creed, the Western Church actually added a phrase without consent of the Eastern Church. And it said that the Holy Spirit came not only from the Father, but also from the Son. And the problem with that is then it diminished the Holy Spirit as less than being a full member of the Trinity, and instead made it as like a subservient to both the Father and the Son. So this caused a schism between the Western and the Eastern Church, because the Eastern Church didn't know about it, so they just did it, which is also maybe why, if you've ever been to an Eastern Church, there might be a, better, a bigger emphasis on the Holy Spirit than what we typically find in the West. But recently, there's been a renaissance of the Holy Spirit in the West, especially in the Western Church, due in large part to the Pentecostal movement of the 1900s. And so these two sides, the East and the West, are coming back together. And why I say this and why this is important is because this schism has largely, largely shaped our view of the Holy Spirit. We typically diminish the Holy Spirit and view him as less than a God and more like a force or a power or maybe a magician According to the American Worldview Inventory, just over half of all adults, 52%, contend that the Holy Spirit is not a living entity, but is a symbol of God's power, presence, or purity. So my point is this, that the schism has led us to miss the person of the Holy Spirit, and therefore enabled us to miss God in our midst. Because because the Holy Spirit's not just a force or a power, it's a full-fledged member of the Trinity. He's equally God and distinct from the Father, and the Son. Still really difficult for us to comprehend. Sometimes we understand the Father, kind of vaguely get that, God in the sky maybe, or the Son, living, breathing Jesus. But this Holy Spirit thing, like, what is that? Like, and who has three first names? Like, this is weird. How do I pray to the Holy Spirit? So let me provide a metaphor that I find particularly helpful in the Spirit. 
Uh, in Greek, the word for the Holy Spirit that's most often used is the word pneuma. Can you guys say that? Pneuma. Starts with a P. P is silent. Pneuma. That's why the study or theology of the Holy Spirit is called pneumatology. And pneuma can have many different translations in English. Sometimes it's spirit, sometimes it's wind, sometimes it's breath. And this is helpful when you look at the Trinity because we see a slew of metaphors that collide into a beautiful picture. The German theologian Jürgen Moltmann puts it this way, every person of the Trinity has two names because there are also two metaphors. The first person is the father or the utterer. The second person is the son or the word. And the third person is the spirit or the breath. I like this metaphor. I think it's helpful because it paints the picture of their function but also their union. You see the Father speaking into existence. You see the Spirit giving the breath of life. And you see the Son being the logos or the word that is produced. But back to that question. So again, how is the Holy Spirit better, especially if they're equal? How is the breath better than the word? Well, for that, we're going to look at one more metaphor. It's a metaphor of water for the Holy Spirit. So we're going to trace this metaphor of water through the scriptures in three scenes. Creation, promise, and invitation. So feel free to follow along with me in your Bibles. I'm going to be reading a lot of text. If you want to just bookmark it or pull out your phone, that's great. I'm going to have it on the screen as well. Um, Whatever you want, that is okay. But... If you don't have a Bible, we have some in the back. We'd love for you to just take one of those home. That's a gift. Just have it. All right, first scene, creation. The first time we see the Spirit in connection with water is in the Genesis count of creation. Genesis 1.1. This is page 1 of the Bible, verse 1. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Now, something you need to know about ancient Near Eastern culture is that the waters were not like a beautiful picture that they are today. We love waterfalls, we love the ocean, all that stuff. It gives us like fuzzy feelings. Back then, that is not the case. The waters represented darkness, represented chaos. They were to be feared. And so when we see the Spirit hovering over the waters, we see a few things. First, that the Spirit was there from the beginning in the creation process. Didn't come later, it was there in the beginning. But we also see that one of the functions of the Holy Spirit is to transform those places of darkness, fear, and chaos into a place of order, of life. That is one of the Holy Spirit's functions. Then if you flip a couple pages later, um, in Genesis 3, we see what Christians, Christians typically label the fall, found in Genesis 3, kind of like halfway through that chapter there. This is where Adam and Eve eat the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God sends them out of the garden, and he sends them out towards the east. This is important, so hold on to that for a second. But we're going to go to our second scene, promise. So turn with me to Ezekiel 47. Meet you there in a second. This is a long scripture I'm about to read. It's kind of risky. Anytime you read a long scripture, it's like, are you guys going to pay attention? I don't know. Um, but I think it's, what's that, Matt? You will? Okay, thank you. Thanks for the assurance. Uh, I think it's worth reading in full. So if it's helpful for you, you can follow along. I will have it on the screens. You can read it. But if that's not helpful, feel free to just close your eyes and let me read it over you. This is Ezekiel 47, 1 through 12. And I want you to picture yourself in this scene. It says, The man brought me back to the entrance of the temple. 
and I saw water coming out from under the threshold of the temple towards the east, for the temple faced east. The water was coming down from under the south side of the temple, south of the altar. He then brought me out through the north gate and led me around to the outside of the outer gate facing east. And the water was trickling from the south side. As the man went eastward with a measuring line in his hand, he measured off a thousand cubits and then led me through water that was ankle deep. He measured off another thousand cubits and then led me through water that was knee deep. Measured off another thousand and led me through water that was up to the waist. He measured off another thousand and now it was a river that I could not cross because the water had risen and was deep enough to swim in. A river that no one could cross. He asked me, son of man, do you see this? Then he led me back to the bank of the river. When I arrived there, I saw a great number of trees on each side of the river. He said to me, this water flows toward the eastern region and goes down into the Arabah, where it enters the Dead Sea. When it empties into the sea, the salty water there becomes fresh. Swarms of living creatures will live wherever the river flows. There will be a large number of fish because this water flows there and makes the salt water fresh. So where the river flows, everything will live. Fishermen will stand along the shore. From Engedi to Englaim, there will be places for spreading nets. The fish will be of many kinds, like the fish of the Mediterranean Sea. But the swamps and marshes will not become fresh, for they will be left for salt. Fruit trees of all kinds will grow on both banks of the river. Their leaves will not wither, nor will their fruit fail. Every month they will bear fruit, because the water from the sanctuary flows to them. Their fruit will serve for food and their leaves for healing. Beautiful. Can you see that? The vision Ezekiel sees is a trickle of water that turns into a raging river that's too big to cross. It's the same promise that sounds familiar because it's the same promise we see in another passage of the Bible. If you're familiar with it, on the last page in Revelation 22, where there will be a river of the water of life with trees bearing fruit in every season and whose leaves are for the healing of the nations. But did you notice what direction the river flows in Ezekiel's vision? East. It's the same direction Adam and Eve exit the garden. It's the same direction representing the human condition. The human condition that tries to control the chaos but only results in more heartache. But this promise from Ezekiel is a river flowing east, bringing life wherever it goes, including the Dead Sea. Do you know what I call it, the Dead Sea? Nothing can live there. There's too much salt. And yet in Ezekiel's vision, the river flows east and brings life to places where life is impossible. It is a promise of God saying, in the place of death and chaos, I will pour out my spirit and it'll be like an unstoppable current of life. So what places in your life feel like the Dead Sea? What places feel broken beyond repair? What places does it feel impossible for life to flood in? What places feel like the chaotic waters that are spinning out of control? There's good news in this promise because we see an invitation to come into the water to wade into the waters where chaos becomes order until you are enveloped in it, until you're swimming in it, until you are a part of the current that brings life. 
And that brings us to our final scene in the scripture's invitation. Y'all still tracking with me? This is the last time. So let's turn to John 7, 37. John 7, 37. It begins by saying, on the last and greatest day of the festival. We're going to stop right there because we need some context to understand this. The feast that John is referring to is the Jewish feast called Sukkot, which is the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles was a time and is still a time, if you go in any Jewish community or even to Israel, where the Jewish people will uh, spend a time of annual pilgrimage. It's one of the three annual feasts where people descend on the city of Jerusalem, but they set up makeshift tents or shelters, tabernacles, booths, to remember the time that they wandered in the wilderness. A lot of their feasts do that. But that's what this, is, this feast is. On this last and greatest day, um, something important happens. This feast lasts kind of like almost a whole week, but every day there's something that happens and there's lavish celebrations that take place each day. On the, on, sorry, none greater of these celebrations would be when the, the priest would gather this water basin. You would climb up the, the steps of the temple and you would pour it at the end of the day down these steps and it would form a trickle. It's basically reenacting this vision that we see in Ezekiel, right? He's, he's taking this water and saying, gosh, in the places of death, there will be life. And every day, all week, the people are, are experiencing this and seeing this day after day after day until the last and greatest day of the festival. On this day, its climax would occur. Because on this day, the priest would get up, just like he had before, and pour a basin of water down the steps. But not one time. Not two times, but seven times. And so from what started as a trickle, soon starts to form a stream, and then a current flowing to the east. People would gather around from all over the city to witness the culmination of this festival. They would gather in quiet reverence, prayer, and hope as they longed for order in the chaos, as they longed for God to show up, for life to flow into the places of death. And then right in that moment, on the last and greatest day of the festival, during the climax of the week, when all was quiet, when you could probably hear a pin drop, in the middle of the final procession, as water is running down the temple steps, and huge crowds are longing and crying out for God to fulfill his promise, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, Rivers of living water will flow from within them. Jesus makes a dramatic interruption to say, I am the living water. This ceremony is just a foretelling of me. And then in John, the disciple goes on to write, by this he meant the spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. So Jesus issues an invitation to come to wade into the waters and let the Spirit bring order and life to your chaos and to your death. But it will only come through the outpouring of His Spirit. For up until that time, the Spirit was only given to a particular person in a particular time for a particular purpose. But after the birth of the church, church in Acts 2, that promise extends to any person who wants it. Friends, the offer for peace and the chaos is available. It's available. 
And not only so, but if you accept it and wade into the waters, you will become part of that river, flowing east, overflowing with unstoppable life. And this takes us back to the problem the early church faced, but one that we rarely faced. Because the early church had so much experience and so little understanding and knowledge of how to, under, how to put it in a box and get it. We tend to flip that script. We rarely, rarely want to engage with experience until we figure it all out. We need to know everything before we jump in. We hear the invitation from Jesus to drink and swim in the waters of life, but refuse to wade in until we have a sophisticated understanding, even the physics of the river. And so we divorce our experience of the Holy Spirit from a doctrine of, of Christianity. We quench the Spirit by trying to put him in a box. We view him as a power source and not a person. In other words, we create a worldview instead of a relationship. And I'm not bashing a worldview, especially a biblical worldview. I think a biblical worldview is super helpful. It makes you a better person, 100%. Guarantee that. It's far help, more helpful than not having one. But the problem with a worldview is it's only helpful until it's not. Mike Tyson says, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. <laughs> worldview is kind of like that. Sounds really good on paper until you have to stare death and chaos in the eyes. And then no amount of intellectualizing will help you out of that pain. Tyler Staten says a worldview can get you by on ordinary days, but a philosophy cannot heal you from the pain that is in this world. A worldview feels like enough until it suddenly doesn't. A worldview may help you, but it cannot heal you. And we get this. I don't need to convince you of the pain. You know the pain. The pain of health. When your body betrays you with a cancer diagnosis and you can't make sense of it because you are always the healthy one. Or despite doing your best to hold on to the positive vibes or practice gratitude every day, you can't help but shake the feeling that somehow the world would just be better off without you in it. Or the pain of singleness. That despite years and years of praying for a spouse, there's still no one in sight. So your conclusion is that there just must be something wrong with you for no one wants to be by your side. So you're terrified you will spend your final days alone. Or the pain of marriage. That the person you're with now feels entirely different than the one you stood at the altar with decades ago. That they've become more of a business partner or a roommate rather than a lover. Or the pain of success, that you finally achieved what you sacrificed so much for, but now that you got it, it feels like there's a piece of you that's missing. That somewhere you lost yourself along the way. You may have gained the world, but you're afraid you lost your soul in the process. Or the pain of addiction. That no matter what you do, you can't seem to break free from whatever substance or habit that plagues you. Plagues you. It may go underground for a season, but then it suddenly rears its ugly head in a new way, flooding you with hopelessness and shame. You are well acquainted with the pain. I don't need to convince you of that. Some of you live it every day. You know it. But did you know there was a promise? A promise that where the river flows, everything will live. 
that there is a river and a spirit who wants to make the darkest places in your story teem with life. It is not removal of your death, but resurrection of it. The Holy Spirit is not an escape from this world, but the way to come alive in its chaos. The Holy Spirit is not an escape from this world, but the way to come alive in its chaos. And the invitation is not observation, it's participation. You cannot drink on the banks of the river. It's not possible. Only once you wade in can you experience all that the Holy Spirit has for you. And here is where it gets really good. Because here is when that invitation that Jesus extends to you and to me can start to flood our community. Because here is where we're invited to love our neighbor. And I'll confess before we even jump into that that I'm not very good at that. I'm not very good at this. I struggle with it all the time. In fact, just a few months ago, I was in the lobby feeling like I had to be a superhero. And I was like, all of this is up to me. And I was talking to Pablo, the same Pablo who got up here and led us in communion. And he said, nothing is required of you except for what is in union with God. Nothing is required of you except for what is in union with God. That's my only job. I don't need to change the world. All that pressure is an illusion. And hallelujah, that is so. Because when I try to make a big mess of it, How is the Holy Spirit better? It's because we simply do not possess the power to change another person. We can't do it. The Holy Spirit does and can and wants to and will. And this is why Jesus says it's better for him to leave so the Spirit can come. Because the Spirit who was once reserved for a particular person in a particular time for a particular purpose is now accessible to everyone who wants it. For you, for me, to offer it to a a world that is dying. And only through the Spirit can we love our neighbor and bring rivers of life to places of death. He is enough. Robert Coleman puts it this way, in giving the Holy Spirit to his followers, Jesus was also equipping them for evangelistic ministry. He frequently emphasized the fact that evangelism was not a human undertaking, but a work of the Holy Spirit. His last hours with the Twelve were spent assuring them that the Holy Spirit would be adequate equipment for the evangelistic task. So do you want healing? Do you want to love your coworker or family member? Do you want to wade into the waters that bring life to death and order to chaos? Do you want to swim in the river whose banks splash onlookers, soaking them in a taste of life? Then drink deeply of the Holy Spirit. Get to know him as a person. Accept Jesus' invitation. Rely on him as your counselor, comforter, advocate, and guide. Let's pray.
Holy Spirit, we just take a moment to pause. Get us in touch with what we're feeling. What do you need to release? Spirit, reveal to me where I've been trying to control. And now I give it to you. everyone and everything to you. I release everyone and everything to you. that place, God, I ask you to flood my life. I invite you in. You say where the river flows, everything will live, and yet I have a hard time believing that. places I feel like the dead sea to me and it feels impossible to live but you promise that where the river flows everything will live so I trust you as your word those places of death and resurrect them. Pour out your spirit. Come, Holy Spirit, come. Come. 